Welcome to Tell Your Story Alaska, real Alaskans, real stories. I'm your host, Billy Turnland, and here is your story. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Tell Your Story Alaska. Today is a really good day to record because... Uh, Well, kind of for bad reasons. My kids are sick and I was going to go to the hangar today and do some maintenance, but being the kids were sick and this morning my back was just just really tight and causing me, I don't want to say pain, but a lot of discomfort. But then, you know, my wife and I were just talking and I, I called the guys at the hangar. They're not very busy. So I just decided to stay home today. So I thought it'd be a good day to record. My back's feeling much better. And I'm out in my little cabin. The wood stove is crackling. It's nice and warm in here. And I am coffeeed up. And I've got my notes in front of me. And I am ready to tell another story. Today's story is about how I did a complete rebuild of my airplane. Happened to have a 1978 Mall M5 235C. And I purchased this purchased this aircraft uh, and back in 2000 or early in 2019 I think and I purchased it because not long before that I totaled an airplane which is a story I think I'll do an, another episode on but I used to own a Cessna 150 and I was landing it on a sandbar and I flipped it over and it landed on its back and that is a whole story that's kind of embarrassing In fact, I actually have an entire episode, like a transcript written for my five worst aviation decisions. You know, it's the sort of episode, you know, a pilot may never want to tell. But I had thought it's better to learn from someone else's mistakes than from your own. So I thought I would take that risk and tell you my mistakes. But we're not going to do that today. Um, Today, I want to tell you about um, something cool I did, which was a complete rebuild of this Mall M5. Now, this Mall is the is the airplane I learned to fly floats on. I got my seaplane rating on it. I also learned how to fly on skis, but still, most of the time, it is on wheels. Uh, my favorite type of flying is float plane flying. There's, you know, as I said in previous episodes, there is a lot of lakes here. When I take off and fly around, there's just lakes everywhere. And lakes are great because they are runways when you have your float plane. And that is my favorite part of flying is landing on water. There's just something about it that I really love to land in some remote lake. And I'm remote and it's quiet and beautiful and I can catch some fish. Uh, My favorite part of flying by far. But I actually um, have not done that as much as I had wished. At any rate, I bought this mall from a co-worker. And I... Flew it for about nine months, and most of those nine months it was on floats and a little bit on skis and even less, well, I don't know if less, but some on wheels. And uh, after after about nine months, that is right when COVID was just starting to come on the scene. Now, when COVID came on the scene, all of the villages in Alaska pretty quickly shut down. All the shutdowns were just right ahead of us. And so looking at my mall, the engine had about 1,900 hours on it. And TBO, or time before overhaul, is about 2,000 hours. So it was right close to that. Now, I fly under Part 91 
And under Part 91, you can go over the 2,000 hour mark if it still passes compressions and a mechanic signs off on it. But, you know, it's probably not recommended. But still, I was, it was right up there as an old engine. And the, the fabric on it was also old. I, you know, I could start seeing the sunlight poking through it at certain spots. It was getting weak. It was worn out. It still had some life left in it, but it was kind of like if I'm going to redo this airplane, which it probably needs, uh, now is the time to do it. So I want to give a brief history of this plane before I dive into the, the, the disassembly and reassembly of this thing, uh, because the story is really quite neat. There's a man who I met not too long after I moved here named Chet Godin. And Chet, not too long ago, less than a month ago, um, just passed away. He was a, uh, an old, very sweet man, kind of a everybody's grandpa kind of guy, just very, very sweet man. And back in the late 90s and early 2000s, Chet was a guy who flew around the state of Alaska, and he brought a friend with him to these villages where he would share the gospel with people. And that friend recently was chatting with another friend of mine, and this was prompted by Chet's death not long ago, and he showed my friend a photo. He said, I want to show you this airplane I flew around, and by the way, this changed my life this time with Chet flying in this plane. Showed my friend uh, a picture of the plane, and it was a picture of my now mall. I knew that Chet had owned this plane before. I did not realize it was the plane that he flew around the state to share the gospel with. And the man who was telling my friend about this said it changed his life. And so we made that connection that uh, I now own the plane and it's parked not too far from where he was. So um, really neat history of this plane that the plane I now have has this ministry legacy. Even um, the guy I bought the airplane from is also involved in ministry and had been using it for that. So a really cool legacy of this plane. But now this plane had shown its age and it was ready to be overhauled. Um, I decided I was going to overhaul it. However, I was terrified of this. You know, those looming questions when you're starting something that's out of your comfort zone. That it's like, is this even a good idea? Am I dumb for doing this? Am I even capable of this? I don't know how to do everything required to complete a complete breakdown and rebuild of an aircraft. However, at the time I had I had been learning about the concept of risk. You know, if you never ever take a risk, you'll never ever learn and you'll never ever grow. You'll never ever become more competent and confident in the skill set that you are working towards. What is required for risk-taking is humility. Because humility, when I, when I say humility, what I mean is, because it can mean a lot of things, what I mean is you are willing to reveal what you don't know. You're willing to ask the dumb questions. You're willing to not let possible criticisms of what you're trying to take on to keep you stagnant. Because that was a problem with me. If I ventured out to do an idea, I feared, man, I feared the possible criticisms. Now, if you are stepping out to do something and you never receive any criticism, maybe you need to step out a little more. Maybe you need to take a more of a risk. And if you're not willing to take a risk, 
because um, your lack of knowledge on something or your incompetency about something will be revealed, then you need more humility. Now, I'm, I'm a licensed mechanic, and uh, I went to school for this. I'm an AMP, IA mechanic, and I am, I am embarrassed by what I don't know. You know, when I, I remember when I graduated from AMP school, they told me that my AMP license is now a license to start learning. And that was so true because uh, the real learning started after I got my license. Okay, so humility is the willingness to ask the dumb questions. It is how you become the person uh, that people seek to learn from. I want to give a special shout out to my friend and coworker Mike Sitters, who not only gave me some hangar space for a long period of time, and he put up with me for all this time, but I, I was he was also the guy I could go to to ask those dumb questions, you know, Hey, Mike, I know I'm a licensed mechanic. I know I'm supposed to know how to do this, but can you show me? And without mockery, he very humbly showed me how to do a lot of things. So, Mike, I know you listen to this. A special thank you to you for your generosity and letting me use that hanger for a long period of time. And you gave me an incredible deal, which helped me financially. So uh, yeah, big shout out to Mike. And I thank you for being the guy I can ask the dumb questions to. There is a proverb that I like. It's Proverbs 29, 23. It says, a man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. So you can think of humility as an investment that one day will bring forth honor. It's not today. You're going to feel silly because you're asking the question you think you shouldn't ask or you think you should already know. But when you walk through that sort of embarrassment or shame, if you will, if you take on that humility, it's an investment that one day will bring forth honor because you'll become the person with the knowledge, with the competency and with the expertise that others will seek out and that's when the honor comes. So think of it as an investment, if you will. Uh, in my case, uh, what I came out with from that investment was an awesome airplane. So if anything else, maybe you can come out with an awesome airplane. All right, so I first started this project in December of 2019. I finished this project. In other words, I started tearing it apart then. I, I did the first flight with a completed airplane in October of 2022, so that was a little less than two years. It's really difficult to summarize in one episode everything that I did in two years with this airplane. And so just know I'm leaving out an incredible amount of detail. And so my wife helped me think through this a bit is to tell the story of the rebuild, not the details of the rebuild. And so that's what I'm going to do today. So uh, back in December of 2019, I began to disassemble the airplane. Now, to begin a disassembly of an airplane, this is a fabric plane. It's not all metal. It's like an airframe and fabric. You, you begin by taking a razor blade and you simply cut into the fabric. Now, that first cut is the scariest one because you know as soon as you cut into this thing, there is no going back because once you cut it open, you can't go fly it which was difficult because I had just flown the plane like the day before. I landed it, put it in the hangar, and now I'm cutting into the thing. And so it's like, am I really doing this? Is this a bad idea? All of those hesitancies were coming up. But regardless, I took the razor blade and sliced it open and pulled that fabric off. And that fabric was really 
old. Like it was about 40 years old and it was pretty uh, brittle is the word. And so it wasn't lifeless, like it had life left in it. But still, you know, if I'm going to be flying around the state of Alaska that and feeling how brittle that was, it, there was, it was a little uncomfortable and I was glad that I made that cut. So uh, from there on, I began disassembling this airplane completely. Everything came out, all of the wires, all of the control cables, all of the brake lines, all of the wiring, everything was completely disassembled. And when you get it down to the bare bones, it's almost a pathetic sight to see this thing, just a, a frame sitting there with all of the little parts and wires hanging everywhere. And by the way, when I had this thing down to just the frame and then the instruments and the wiring was still in there, oh man, that's uh, an overwhelming moment because I knew all of those wires that are just spewed everywhere and hanging out of this thing have to go somewhere. You know, it's easy to rip wires off and disconnect them, but knowing that those have to go back on in a very specific way is extremely overwhelming. <laughs> and you have that thought of what have I just done? <laughs> I took apart a flying airplane. What have I done? But uh, the cut had been made. We were on our way. And so the way to start was to get that airframe to a place where it could be powder coated. Now there's a choice between doing a powder coat and a, um, a primer. The advantage to the primer is that you, you can spray the, the airframe with the primer and you can see the corners and the welds on the airframe much better than a powder coat. And so a lot of people argue that you, know, you should do the primer so if a crack develops, you can, you can spot it. With the powder coat, the powder coat's kind of this really hardened rubbery substance that coats, it like seals it so well that uh, if a crack did develop, it would probably crack the frame without cracking the powder coat itself. And so if there was a crack, you wouldn't see it. However, powder coating is uh, currently a very popular way to protect your airframe. And so at the end of the day, it is what I did. And I really love the way it turned out. It's interesting because with the powder coat, they sandblast the whole airframe, which after they sandblasted it, I inspected it and I had to hire a welder to make some repairs. There was some deep pitting. Another reason I decided not to go with the primer because um, the primer is what was on there and it didn't seem like it protected it over the 40 years. And so I thought, the powder coat might last even longer and they claim it will. So, hey, when I'm a really old guy, I'll let you know. But I took it to a place called Advanced Powder Coats uh, nearby in Wasilla, Alaska. I was super impressed with these guys. Very good customer service, very kind, which, by the way, I'm going to compliment some businesses in this podcast and none of them sponsored me. I promise I have no sponsors, but I do want to compliment when people deserve it. And so Advanced Powder Coat did a great job, very kind. Uh, they gave me fair prices and they did a great job. So the, anyway, the powder coat process was pretty cool. They take your sandblasted airframe and they magnetize it and then they put this powder on it. And I'm. they might listen to this and say, oh, you got it all wrong. So bear with me. But they magnetize it, this powder sticks to it because of the magnetism and then they bake it in these giant ovens and in baking it the powder coat adheres to the airframe and it creates this beautiful like shiny 
really good coating over the whole thing. And so it just turned out beautifully. Okay, so after the powder coat was done, now I have a nice brand new looking airframe and it was time to do the polyfiber, which is the fabric part. And so the fuselage is all airframe and fabric and so putting on the fabric is quite a process. And I'm not gonna go through the whole process, but there is an STC for this called polyfiber and you start with the glue, polytack, uh, you glue it on and then you the most, the most uh, satisfying part is when you take hot iron at a very specific temperature and you iron the fabric and it tightens it too. It's surprising how tight it gets and it's so satisfying because it's a lot of work gluing these things on, gluing the fabric to the airframe. And then you put on that, you know, the iron, it just tightens up and it looks so beautiful. And you're, this is when the first time when your airplane begins to start looking like an airplane again and it's so refreshing. Okay, so after the uh, you iron it. Then there's stuff called poly brush, which seals it. And then there's poly spray, which is like this ground up metal that you put on there. It's a UV protectant. And then you do the painting process. Now the painting process is kind of miserable and it's so tedious just because anything you don't want paint on, you have to cover it. So I think I literally spent like two days just prepping for painting because you have to cover everything that you don't want paint on. So you have paint, uh, paper and special tape and you're trying to get every little nook and cranny covered. And it's just so tedious. And then when you actually get to painting, it just goes in like 15 minutes, super quick. For the painting, I had to put on a paint suit and there's this paint booth with a large fan that blows large amounts of air through the room. But even with that, the fumes are really bad for you and it's just kind of miserable. I would have to, after painting, all of these different steps, there's a lot of like layers of paint and I'd have to go outside and go for walks just to get fresh air. And it was, it, I just, I don't think I want to be a painter, an airplane painter with the, just because of all the, I'm pretty sure my lungs are really damaged. But I think something that damaged my lungs even more was the uh, removal of the old paint. Now the wings on a Mall M5 are metal. They're not fabric like the fuselage. So... Uh, in order to re to remove the paint, I bought this really expensive paint remover that I had to do a special order for. And this stuff is so toxic. It comes in like a, a five-gallon barrel. Not a bucket, but this little barrel thing. And it has like a skull and crossbones on the side. It, like, it looks like one of those things in the video games that you have to blow up to kill all the bad guys that are like standing around it conveniently. Uh, it looked like that. So um, it was extremely toxic stuff, but it was effective. And you had to paint this stuff on the old paint, this chemical, the, the remover. You paint it on there and you cover the wing with plastic. So you let it work all night. And the next day you, you show up with a Scotch-Brite and you show up with plastic scrapers and brass brushes. And you're just trying to get all this old paint off. I don't wish this on anybody. This is just torture. It's, it's that stuff is, the fumes are so bad. Like I had headaches all the time and it just took an incredible amount of time just sitting there and my, like scraping and my hand would hurt and the fumes. And it took so much time that I actually like got a Netflix account and I got some uh, earbuds and I was just started to watch shows because it was so time consuming and so miserable in those fumes that I just needed something to get me through it. So eventually the uh, the paint on the wings and other small parts were finally removed. 
and finally got that done. But then even with that, I had to go through the entire paint process, you know, so more fumes, more paint, more headaches, lots of walks outside to take breaks. Yes, I do not want to repeat that ever again. Now, one part of this story I do want to tell is choosing the color. Now, I told my wife, who has a really good eye for color, and I have a really bad eye for color. So I told her uh, I'd like the plane to be blue and gray, which she agreed with. She thought that looked great. And so I had this color palette with the paint brand I was going to use. And I said, well, these are the two that I'm thinking of. And of course, she just looks at me like I'm an idiot. Like, how could you possibly think that those two colors are a good idea? I'm like, well, what do you mean? She said, Billy, the gray you chose it has a yellow tint to it. And, th and then you have the blue. You can't do the blue with a gray with a yellow tint. It has to be a gray with a blue tint. Then they match. And I thought, I, I don't even know what you just said, but I'm just going to trust you. And so I, I just said, you tell me which colors I should do. And I did. And so guys out there, sometimes listening to your wife is exactly what you need to do when it comes to things you don't know what you're talking about. So I listened to my wife and man, the paint looks awesome. The color schemes just turned out great. It's like pleasing to the eye. Yes. Good job, Erica. I pat myself on the back for humbling myself a little bit and saying, I don't know what I'm talking about with color. So yes, she did awesome with that. All right, so some of the new instruments that I purchased, because I did reuse some of the old instruments, but one of my goals was to clean up that instrument panel as much as I could. All pilots love cleaning up that instrument panel so it's not so busy. This is like what the modern pilot likes, because those old panels, when you look at them, they're kind of overwhelming. I mean, I you get used to them after a while, but there's a lot going on out there. There's actually the same amount going on with these newer, more streamlined panels. It's just uh, all that information you get from those analog instruments, those old ones, can be condensed down to digital screens now. And it's nice because all pilots, when they're training to fly, they have to learn to do the scan. And the scan means your eyes are scanning the instruments in a certain uh pattern so that you learn to know what's going on quickly with what's happening with the airplane and your eyes are still outside the plane and yet you can look down and do a quick scan and get the information you need. With the digital screens they're quite nice because the scan gets easier. You got more information on one screen and your eyes learn how to read that screen in a quicker way, in a more efficient way and the presentation of the information is just so nice with this digital stuff. So yeah, I'm a big proponent of digital instruments on the panels and it cleans up the panel, it just looks beautiful. So some new, new instruments that I got was a Garmin G5. The old panel did have a G5 on it, but I got a second one and I'm using the second one as an HSI, which is really nice. I also bought a Garmin 355 uh, radio, Navcom, also a GPS. And it's, I've been using it a little bit right now. I, granted, I haven't used it a lot, but I actually have not been a big fan lately. Sorry, Garmin, but just get the Garmin 225, a very simple, reliable radio. That's a good one. This one, it, it's cool because it's a touchscreen. It's Navcom. It also has a, ma a moving map on it, which is all nice features. There's just something I haven't taken the time to sit down and think about why I don't like it that much, but sorry, that's the way it is so far. Still 
functional, works well, and uh, the Garmin 355 was brand new. Okay, I also put in brand new Whalen LED nav strobe lights. These are great because the old style strobe lights use up a lot of energy, but these LED ones hardly use any power at all, and they also like last forever. And so um, highly recommend those. I bought those and installed those. Okay, one of the neat things I got was an engine monitor. It's a primary engine monitor called a CGR30. And you can get a single screen or two screens for these, and it's considered a primary instrument, which just means I can get rid of the old analog engine monitoring instruments and really clean up my panel. And when I decided to get this one, I called EI, Electronics International, and I told them, uh, hey, I just want to inquire. Someone told me that you... Uh, will give discounts to people working in charitable organizations or missions. I'm working in missions, and I would just want to inquire about a possible discount or something that you normally do. Well, when they wrote me back, they said, fill out this form. And so I filled it out. And then when they got back to me after that, they said, we decided to gift you a CGR30 with the two screens. And so this was about $6,000 in value that they gifted to me just an incredible gift and so i promise ei has not sponsored me but thank you ei it is an incredibly generous gift and you didn't have to do that and you did and so i have that cgr30 installed right now and it is just excellent my chts my egts fuel level fuel flow and manifold pressure propeller rpm the, I mean, all of the things that you want to know with what's going on with that engine is right there on those two little screens. Just excellent. Yes, thank you, Electronics International. Which, by the way, that CGR30 was quite a bit of work to install. You have to, when they send it to you, they send you all these like brain boxes which correspond to different elements of the engine monitor. And you have to create harnesses. Now, harnesses are... Like they look like those old style plugs you used to have on your desktop computer, the plugs with the little tiny pins. And so you have to create those plugs and <clears throat> you have to put in the each individual pin and run the wire where it's supposed to go. And it's quite a bit of work. Um, and so I actually spent about an entire month just on the panel wiring. A large portion of that was the CGR30. But of course, it was also the new G5, the Garmin 355. All of those came with schematics, electronic, electric schematics that I had to navigate and install all that wiring. So one wire at a time for about a whole month, I worked on this and I finished the panel. And even the, the panel part where the face of the panel where the instruments are in, I completely rebuilt that from scratch out of aluminum and cut the holes. One of the hard parts was the lower part uh, of the panel in a mall it's like this uniquely shaped part of the panel that i had to in order to replicate the old one because the old one was kind of falling apart so i rebuilt it but to replicate it because it's a complex bend i took i took a piece of paper and wrapped it around the old one and traced it and that and i unfolded the paper and that gave me a template i used that template to cut out a aluminum sheet and then i was able to bend that sheet into the same shape as the old panel piece, which is like this weird bendy uh, complex piece. And on that piece is where the, the circuit breakers and switches went. 
uh, and also to the thing that the yoke goes through and the, and the control levers are. And so I was pretty proud of how that turned out. And I painted all of those a really nice gray color. And I thought it just turned out so nice. Um, so that was the panel and all of the wiring. Just a lot of work. All right. Another interesting element is the wingtips, the cowling, the interior, the floor, and the seats. I had them all redone with carbon fiber material. Now, the old ones were, were all fiberglass. So the cowling was fiberglass, the wingtips fiberglass. The paneling inside the plane was not fiberglass. It was metal with a vinyl. But I replaced all of that for carbon fiber material. Carbon fiber is very good material. It's very light. It's easy to work with. It cuts nice. And it has an incredibly high strength to weight ratio. And so it makes it perfect for aviation. And so I hired a, a local guy. I mean, I don't know if hired is the right word. Requested a local guy who has a little company called Carbon Concepts. Again, not a sponsor, but I do want to do a shout out because he did a great job. And uh, he had a mold for a mall cowling and he made it out of carbon fiber for me. Now, when he gave it to me, he kind of cut it oversized a little bit and I had to cut it into place, which is a really smart way to do it. So then I can custom fit it to the plane. So that was a whole process of custom fitting a brand new cowling and all the same with the wingtips and all the interior pieces had to be custom fit, which I did. And the floor pieces was a thicker sheet of carbon fiber. And so I saved a lot of weight by doing the interiors, flooring, wingtips, and the cowling with carbon fiber. Now, a cool thing about the guy at Carbon Concepts, his name was Randy, a really nice guy. I would go over there and talk with him about the details of what I wanted. And he and I would just started small talking. We'd have these like little conversations. He even told me about like secret fishing spots he knows about. And he started telling me about this cabin. He pulled out a map and he's like, I got, I have a, like a secret cabin right here and go ahead and use it if you want. Just little things like that, that were just really uh, cool and uh, appreciative, you know, just kind of, he was a pilot also, and he has a, an experimental Piper cub that he has done a lot of interesting things with, with carbon fiber on it. Um, really impressive actually. Anyway, throughout our, our small conversations, we I would just make little mentions of what I did and kind of working in missions. And, you know, some people consider me to be a religious person. I don't use that terminology, but I, I don't deny it. But we, so we, just little mentions, like little God talk mentions along the way. And he would just kind of politely nod. And I can tell he wasn't, you know, quite on board with that when I would mention something like that, but very nice and polite well, near the end of all of this ordering carbon pieces from him, he sent me a text just kind of out of the blue. And he said, hey, I just wanted to let you know that I'm getting baptized. And so I'm not saying it's because of anything I did. But I'm just saying it's a really cool, just little tiny connection of how an airplane project creates these new connections you wouldn't have had otherwise. And you never know how you're going to affect someone. So I was able to have a, a conversation about him, about why did you decide to get baptized? And his answer to me was, well, you know, I, I kind of grew up with knowledge of this stuff. And I just I just wanted to start reading. I wanted to nail down like what I believed and what I thought. So I just started reading and I realized that it was true. I realized that there's ample evidence that it's true. And that was it for me. 
I just really appreciated that because I guess you can say it's one of my soapboxes that I'm interested in what's true, not what makes me a better person, not what's convenient, not what justifies the way I want to live, not I grew up with this, so that's what I am, but just true. Being totally convinced that this thing is true and I'm going to put my heart into it. And that was kind of his story. And I really appreciated that just because it touched on sort of my uh, soapbox is the pursuit of real truth, asking honest questions and seeking honest answers and asking the question no matter how hard it is. So I appreciated that about Randy. He's over at Carbon Concepts in Wasilla. He does good work. So shout out to Randy. Okay, one of the next cool things was the, um, and Randy actually helped with this as well, was that my old aircraft seats were just in terrible shape. Like when you look at them, you can see the insulation, like the the styrofoam under, not styrofoam, but the foam underneath. It was just like coming out and the fabric was ripped. It just did not look good. So I decided to pursue getting these redone, although I knew it would be expensive. So I wasn't sure how I was going to pull it off. So anyway, I I decided to look into options like finding just some covers. I can cover up the ugliness with just a a Walmart like seat cover. I looked into that, but I couldn't find any, even like on Amazon and stuff that would fit over my, my smaller airplane seats because everything out there is for automotive cars and I couldn't find anything over airplane. Everything was like completely redo it, you know, and it's thousands and thousands of dollars. And I was like, oh, just frustrated because I'm not particularly a rich guy. You know, I do have investments in the stock market and that's those did well during the Trump years. That's how I was able to pay for a lot of this. Anyway, I was frustrated and I didn't really know what to do, but I inquired at a company called Sport Aircraft Seats. This is run by a relatively young guy named Daniel, and he is actually very reputable over there at Sport Aircraft Seats based out of, I think he's in Wolf Lake, Alaska, which is kind of near Palmer. He's uh, highly recommended by other pilots I have spoken to, and so... I went over there and went in and talked to him and inquired what would it take to get these seats done. So Daniel and I struck up a conversation and just a quick conversation about airplane seats turned into a really long conversation about life and stuff like that. And he just looked at me after about an hour of talking and he said, can I just take you out to lunch? I said, well, sure. So we went out to lunch and I'm really summarizing the story. This was over not one day, but multiple weeks. But we went out to lunch and we talked for a few hours over lunch. And he kind of told me his story. I'm not going to tell repeat his story on the show because I, you know, I haven't asked Daniel if I could do it. But all to say, he did he did have a religious background, but there was something about it that he didn't like. It was dogmatic. It was stifling. And I'm certain if you're listening to this, you might be nodding be like, oh, I know what you're talking about. Well, that was part of Daniel's story. And so I just we just talked about for his thing it was specifically had to do with what Sabbath meant. What does it mean to cease and rest? And I was able to express to him how much freedom my wife and I have in doing Sabbath. You know, the word Sabbath, uh, we always think it means like rest or it means something very religious, like ceremonially. But the word Sabbath means to cease. It doesn't actually mean rest. It means to cease. And the teachings of Jesus was saying that 
rest is for you. Like it's for you to enjoy, not for you to be burdened with an obligation. And so anyway, we were able to talk about that. And it was just so good to see like freedom happen. But at the end of that, he just kind of looked at me and he's like, you know what? I'm going to do your seats for free. He's like, you still got to pay for the material, but I'll do the labor for free. And he offered me that. And so Daniel, to you, thank you so much for offering that. And he, and Daniel did it. I, I paid for the material. And then he did the labor for free. And it, it's not a little bit of labor. It's a lot of labor. My mall seats were unique. He didn't have a mold for them, which made it very challenging. So he put a lot of work into these. So I highly, 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 highly recommend Sport Aircraft Seats, which Daniel does. He's very professional. Um, man, my seats look stunning, unbelievably beautiful, high quality work. So yes, check out Daniel at Sportercraft Seats. Again, I'm not a sponsor. I just want to point out excellence when I see it. Which, by the way, I have a thought about that, that I wasn't sure I was going to share, but I think I want to. The idea is, it used to be the case that back in the day, the church has, and historically, has always had a lot of issues. But it used to be the case that the church led the way artistically. For example, you get, you know, the best music, Bach, Mozart, a lot of the music that they wrote was for the church. And it's the best music that was ever produced. Or if you look at art from back in the day, it was leading the way with the best art out there. It was beautiful and the best. And nowadays, we seem to have this tendency to try to mimic the way the world does art or ideas or business when it used to be that the church led in these things. And I was just saying that in those who follow Jesus in the Christian faith, wouldn't it be neat if we led the way in excellence of a skill, airplane seats, airplane maintenance, art, music, rather than mimicking the way the world does it so we seem relevant. Just a random thought, something I thought about recently. Maybe that was out of place, but there it is. <laughs> All right, so that was the story with the airplane seats. I'm, I'm super um, happy with the way the seats turned out. The next part of the story I want to tell is the airplane engine. Now, the engine, as I said, had 1,900 hours, and uh, which is only 100 hours short of TBO, or which means time before overhaul. These aircraft engines, you don't just run them indefinitely. They need to be overhauled. They need to be disassembled, put in new parts on the inside, inspected, and then put back together. It's an overhaul. And so I did not have the finances to do an overhaul. And so I put it off, I put it off, I put it off. However, by the time I f had nearly finished the airframe, I was looking at my financial situation versus how much an engine overhaul would cost. And I realized it was actually within my grasp. Like it was actually possible I might be able to pull this off. I might have to do some payments. And I called the overhaul place. They said they do allow you to do payment plans. And so I thought, okay, I need to pull the trigger on this. I need to do it. Now, an engine overhaul I had anticipated to cost between thirty dollars and $40,000. I had about $30,000 um, it's more complex than this, but basically I had about $30,000 and I thought, okay, it's probably going to be more than this, but with some payment plans and stuff, I can pull it off. So my plan was to go ahead and send off the engine. And now once they got my engine apart, they, they started finding problems. 
the main problem being the crankshaft was bent. And they said that they sent the crankshaft off to um, a place to be bent back, but they said they weren't sure it was so far bent, they didn't know if the place would be able to bend it back. And then they started asking me questions like, uh, did you have a prop strike, you know, something like that. I said, no, no. I even talked to the previous owners. They said, no, no prop strikes. So it's, they said it's weird that it was bent, but it's possible like a truck bumped into it while your plane was parked, something like that. But either way, it did run. It did seem to run fine. So it was a bit puzzling. But long story short, they were not able to repair the crankshaft. And it was $9,000 to get uh, not a new one, but a, a one that had been rebuilt and, re- and certified to be put in an engine. So that was $9,000. In addition, the the cylinders that I had sent in with the engine, five out of six of them uh, were not overhaulable for various reasons. I asked for new cylinders, but then they told me, uh, you might be waiting for a very long time. This is COVID world. There's a supply and demand issue. The folks who make the cylinders are like 30,000 cylinders behind or something like that. I said, okay, can you rebuild some old cylinders somewhere? So thank you to Custom Aircraft. Here I'm doing another shout out to a company. Custom Aircraft did a great job of finding me some cylinder cores that were overhaulable. And then I elected to have them nickel plated, which was more expensive and it did take more time, but it was worth it. The nickel plating is an anti-corrosive, what do you call it, a cover on the inside of the cylinder to prevent corrosion. And so if my plane ever sits more than a month or so, it'll prevent that corrosion from growing inside the cylinders. So I have felt that that was worth it. And so that cost more money. Okay, at the end of the day, the bill that I got was $50,000 for this overhaul, which, whoa, is a lot of money. But one of the neat things is while I was in the process of having this engine overhauled, a man started writing me who had, he, he attends a supporting church of mine in Illinois. I won't say who he is. He invested $1,250 in cryptocurrency and his plan was to see how it grew and then send that money into missions work somehow. So he invested the money. And when it came time for me to pay that big fat bill, that $1,250 turned into $20,000. I am suspicious that it actually turned into less than that. And he was just being extra generous. Uh, But a very generous man, you know, uh, paid what I was lacking in the engine overhaul bill. So if you're listening to this, I think I know who you 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 know who you are, and um, it, he attends a church in Illinois that supports me. And um, yes, thank you very much <laughs> for making that cryptocurrency investment, which grew like crazy, and it paid for the rest of my engine. I just think that's kind of a cool story. And I even tried investing a little bit in crypto, and yeah, uh, it. it I didn't invest a lot, but uh, yeah, it didn't go well. So <laughs> I'm thankful it went. It, it worked out well at the time. Okay, so now um, I had all of the components completed, and it was just a matter of putting this airplane back together. And I gotta say, it's it was so satisfying to put this airplane back together. You just start seeing it take shape. You know, the the gears go on. Which, by the way, I bought the extended gears an STC for the airplane it gives it much more you know i gotta take a minute to tell you other things i did to the plane extended gear better takeoff performance gap seals uh in the 
the rear horizontal wing gives it better control with the horizontal with the pitch, especially when you're flying slow and landings and such, more positive control. I put on VGs on the wings. I uh, bought new seat belts and I'm probably leaving out a lot of things, but those are some of the other things that did the plane. Oh, I also, instead of single puck caliper brakes, I got double puck caliper brakes, which uh, I found out later was actually required. I'm glad I did it. I also took off the 29 inch tires that I had on there and I replaced it with 31 inch Alaska Bush tires. The 31 inch Alaska Bush tires are nice because they take a very low PSI. And so when you land, it's kind of like landing on a cloud. It's just very soft. Or if you land on a sandbar or something and there's big rocks, it'll just roll right over those rocks. So really nice to have those big tires on there. You know, those tires go up to 35 inches, but most people feel that 31 is enough because you don't want that extra tire out there, which causes more drag. And so I opted for the smaller ones, less drag, uh, a little bit less, you know, capability of landing on rocky terrain, but still a um, lot less drag. So I went with that. Okay, so finally getting this airplane back together and uh, it was ready for its first flight. And so on this first flight, it was actually a couple of times when I was going to take off and then I found an issue and had a taxi back repair. I mean, this there's so much I'm leaving out. It's painful. Yeah, I, I, so many things are running through my mind. However, uh, I finally one day it was time for that first flight. Now, when you have a brand new engine with a brand new plane, there is a service bulletin for how to break in a new, newly overhauled engine. Um, you don't just go out and start flying it. There's a break-in process. Use a special oil called mineral oil. Normally, you use an ashless dispersant oil, but not when you start out with a new engine. Use a mineral oil. And that oil is what you want to use for those cylinder walls with those piston rings to seat really nice. It bakes that oil into the cylinder walls and makes a nice smooth lubricated surface. So it's very key that that first flight, you fly it very hot and very hard. You work that engine really, really hard so that break-in process happens. Okay, so my first flight out, I took this thing up and just ran the engine hard and flew really high and just flew around for a couple hours. And this thing had such a strong left roll tendency. I had to hold that yoke with a strong right turn to it in order to keep it flying straight. So um, I flew it that way for a couple hours, but of course I don't wanna leave it that way, but I finished my break-in flight and I landed it. And then uh, I had to bring the plane back in and to get rid of that roll tendency, you can adjust the lengths of the struts. And you and by adjusting the struts, you change the angle of attack of the wings and you can get rid of that roll. And so that's what I did and it worked great. The roll is gone, it flies straight. And since then, it's just been continuing that break-in process according to the service bulletin. And I've already been able to do, I've done a lot of short flights. I did one long flight to help out a friend flew to Bethel and back in one day. And man, how cool is it to fly across the, it was like a really long flight. And I've done that long flight before, but to do it in a plane that I built with a good friend was such a sweet time. And because I was helping and be paid for the gas and everything, it was just perfect and a sweet way to like, you know, a cherry on top of finishing an airplane. Okay, so now the only thing left to do on the plane is the miserable process of filling out paperwork. There was a lot of 337s 
a lot of STCs, if you are a mechanic, you know what I'm talking about. You have to fill out these forms, you have to make sure they're filled out properly, and you have to send them into the FAA. And then there's the logbook. My logbook entry uh, was so extensive, I had to type it out on the computer, and I had to make the font very small, but even then it took many multiple pages in my logbook. And so it was an interesting process of figuring out how to get it to fit in the logbook. But it's kind of miserable because you have to do the research on make sure all the part numbers are correct, make sure you didn't forget anything, uh, make sure all the legal requirements are taken care of, just a ton of little uh, mind-numbing details that you have to take care of. So anyway, um, yeah, paperwork finished, everything was done, and I have myself a beautiful Mall M5. Everything is like brand new, and I'm just really happy with the way it turned out. And so nowadays, I've been flying the plane, just trying to get the maximum takeoff and landing performance out of it as I can, and uh, it's just been a lot of fun. So there you go. That is my story of how I did a complete rebuild of my 1978 Mall M5 235C. I have this mall now because I decided to take that risk, just do something that I wasn't sure I could do, but at the end of the day, I pulled it off. And now I'm rewarded with this really nice airplane. And so an encouragement to you, take that risk. I mean, when, when you're wondering about a risk, just consider the alternative because most likely the alternative is nothing, like nothing will happen. And so I encourage you to take that risk. Don't take dumb risks, take wise risks, step out, because if you never take a risk, you're always in your comfort zone. How will you ever grow? All right, guys, that's it for today. Thank you for listening in to today's episode on The Rebuild. I will talk to you next time for more Alaskan stories. This is Tell Your Story, Alaska. If you have a story that you want told or you just want to reach out to me for any reason, please contact me at tysalaska at gmail.com. tysalaska at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you.